Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Thanks for tuning in today. We're going to be looking at probably the most visible part of politics, the people that cover uh, Westminster and bring it to life on our TVs, the broadcast lobby. And we've got a great person to do that in Sam Coates, an ex- experienced lobby journalist. One of the things I was asked to do, to do today is rather than do the interview, is just to stand out of his place of work and yell questions at him as he walks in, in recognition of his <laughs> own contribution to politics, which is far more than that. Sam is the deputy political editor of Sky News, having joined four years ago, but he's been in the lobby. I was surprised to learn when I looked this up for nearly two decades. He first joined the lobby in two That's decades. Right, 2005. Yeah. 2005. I couldn't, couldn't believe that. So his time in journalism also includes... In fact, the first time I worked in the lobby and got a lobby pass or a gallery pass was 1996. That is much longer than I had down on my notes. Um, What does that say about Sam? That's what I want to know. He's been covering it for a long time because previously of the Times, probably best known in Westminster for that stint before Sky News. Um, But I I was also surprised to learn you also covered the White House for the Washington Post. That's right. There's a scheme for young journalists where you, if you are lucky enough to win an award, you go and work for the Washington Post for four months and you get to do some political reporting. And that was the first political reporting I ever did was actually in America rather than the UK. So I've seen the kind of differences in approach and I've flown on Air Force One and Marine One and, you know, covered all of that and sat around George Bush's pool in Texas with Laura Bush and George. Wow. Well, I mean, as is unsurprising, you've already taken over because your skills as a broadcaster are far more than mine and Jonathan's. Uh, How we usually kick off is... Are you well, I think we should start by me just thanking you for having me on this podcast. I'm actually like really touched and thrilled, and it's a special, and it's a it's a it's a special moment, not least because I'm told <laughs> that Jonathan Gullis doesn't talk to journalists, and yeah, here we are, <laughs> here we are, here we are. First time, first time ever. Well, well no, because it, you're you're obviously getting confused because we've done another pod with two other journalists in the lobby. You seem to know. I forgot about them. So I've never very well too. Um, Sam, we usually start by asking some by asking someone how they got into politics journalism. So why was it you decided the journalism would move for you and how did you get straight into the, the lobby so early? Oh gosh, I, like it is all I have ever wanted to do. I mean, since about the age of 14, 15, I knew I wanted to go into journalism. I started work at LBC Radio in London, kind of literally when I was at school doing GCSEs and then worked there weekly through my A-levels. Uh, and then in my gap year when I was 18, I got this opportunity to work at The Independent and it was 1996 going into the 1997 general election, which of course a huge moment in British politics, and they needed more help in the political team. And so I got to see political journalism 28 years ago, and my goodness, it was instantly like a drug. You saw the energy, you saw the uh, kind of kinetic nature of it, you saw the fun. Then the press gallery, which is where print uh, journalists sit, was uh, this kind of hive of wood panel bars and smoking rooms, a sort of bug of smoke covering everywhere that you looked. People filed their copy through these um, phone boxes that line some of the corridors. Uh, and just that sense of being at the heart of everything, I found immensely, you know, attractive, narcissist that I probably am, and wanted to be there. Ever since that moment, as an 18, 19 year old, that's where I wanted to be. Well, so I think there's still a couple of those boxes left where the phones used to be. Is that right? In the lobby. That's right. And they would be directly connected to different newspapers. So you go in, you dial naught, you get through to the Telegraph switchboard, or you dial uh, News International switchboard, as it was then, and different phone boxes for different rooms. Actually, in my gap year, they 
because of mobile phones, they'd largely fallen out of use. So that's where I used to go, uh, like squirrel away in the mirror room and phone my friend who, who was living in Australia at the time. So uh, <laughs> it was quite expensive in 1996 to phone Australia. Uh, so that's why I did it at the expense of a another newspaper. Uh, so let's hope no one's listening who was at that point in charge of the phone, but it's still fun to work out. <laughs> Don't worry, James, nobody is listening. Nobody. <laughs> oh! First oh shot fired. God. First one. He's First so shot rude, fired. It's gone so in already. You've got to keep you guys on your toes. Well, I think we've got plenty to keep, particularly Jonathan on his toes as well, and you, Sam. Well, not here to interview me. The that's, that's the crucial rule here. No, but Sam has, pre prior to the podcast, in pre-briefing, Sam has laid down the challenge to you and said, you talk a big game. <laughs> And this is now your chance to throw it back to the people that normally interview you, the politicians. So we've got Sam. So on that note, Sam, could you give us a description? When we did a pod on the kind of wider lobby, Kate McCann um, of Times Radio said that the way that uh, broadcast differs in the lobby from print is the broadcaster's job is more to explain what's going on today. And the print's job is more looking at what's going on tomorrow. So if you're filing tonight, you're looking at what's going on tomorrow. You've done both for, for a good amount of time. Do you agree with that? How, how, what is the job of a broadcast political journalist? So I think that's right. Uh, Kate McCann, like me, has done newspapers and then moved into broadcasting. She was at Sky for many years when, uh, shortly after I began. And that's right. You spend a lot of time as a broadcast journalist trying to tell the story of the day, trying to uh, knit the elements that have taken place, the interviews, the uh, events that you had a camera at, uh, try and pass them all up in the most effective way to tell the story of the day um, in a little piece of film and then maybe a little live standing outside Downing Street uh, at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but it, I think so much more than that. I mean, for me, the entire mindset of broadcast journalism is, is actually quite different from the entire mindset uh, of print journalism. And it, and it is a bit about what you're talking about. Um, uh, broadcasting absolutely relies on having people prepared to come, come on camera, sometimes less reluctant, more reluctantly than others, but nevertheless being on camera, you cannot live in just a world of anonymous sources and briefings and all of the things that by contrast, absolutely fuel the newspaper lobby. Mm. So when I was a newspaper lobby journalist, my life, was standing in the corridor of the, outside the Times room, uh, having endless conversations, often with ministerial advisors or with shadow cabinet advisors, uh, about what was really going on and what the specifics of any meeting or uh, event or prediction kind of looked like in order to be able to tell the best possible story that you can from your sources. Whereas in broadcasting, you need them to appear and you knit together a story uh, based on the, the kind of elements, the interviews, the appearances in the Commons Chamber, uh, the uh, pictures that, that that you have, and so it, it, it in many ways it feels quite similar, but the doing is incredibly different, and it does result in a slightly different uh, kind of end product. And did you find it difficult transitioning? You'd done print for a long time, very well respected print journalist. You had a lot of big stories whilst you were at the time. Certainly, I remember seeing them. Did you find that transition to becoming a broadcast journalist difficult or was it, was there news things you didn't know you were going to have to, skills you're going to have to learn? Absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. From like the day I walked in, I, you, you know, I have just had so much fun and I'm incredibly grateful at, uh, to Skydies for, for, for having me. Um, of course, there's a learning process. 
I think, uh, you know, the first time people look at you appear on camera trying to make one of these packages, you know, it, it, it's a different mindset. It's a different approach. There was plenty of learning, but at no point did I not feel like there were a lot of people taking me on the journey that I'm still on trying to improve as a TV, but also a written journalist because we write for Sky News and a podcaster because we do that too, and stuff on Bespoke for Social. We like, you know, it's sort of multi-platform environment. Uh, so yeah, you're not the finished product on day one, but it, it, it was, it was, it, it's been good fun. And how was it for you, Jonathan? You, you must've spent your time watching on TV, the people like Sam covering politics <laughs> and as a, as a, you know, admitted political geek that you are, how was it coming into parliament and then having to actually deal with them as part of your job? I think. Sam won't believe it and uh, he's brutal with his banter but actually I was a huge Sam Coates fan when he was working at the Times and one of my favourite journalists to read and so it was quite daunting to suddenly meet these people in person that you've read and you know have made and killed careers to be perfectly frank of politicians I think there's also this fear of you now and know spads, probably as well. spads, you now know with social media as well the news the 24 hour news cycle social media that things are so much more prominent what you say will get out so much quicker and there's no real training. I mean, Conservative HQ will say, oh, well, we offer some media training, but there's nothing like doing it for real and taking the grilling when it's good and when it's bad and learning how to handle that. So it's very daunting. And it's definitely more daunting when the light's on you, you're mic'd up and you know you're on camera and you know that your face will give away as much as what you're saying out of your mouth, if not sometimes more. Whereas in with print journalists, you can sit there and you can have your pre-prepared lines and sort of, you know, it doesn't matter what facial expression you're pulling, that that won't necessarily get in the paper. So that for me was the challenge of how to try and have a stony face. And the, I've sadly got this downward mouth. Like one of those, there's that fish that has a downward slowly mouth. And I've sadly, uh, so I, I constantly look like I'm on the verge of either crying or deeply miserable. Uh, and I haven't quite figured out how to, how to deal with that. Um, what was really interesting about that answer, it, and I'm going to like tiptoe into unpopular territory that I, I won't be repeating later, but actually Jonathan, Sort of shows that he has learned something that quite a lot of his colleagues haven't uh, by doing two things, like by acknowledging what I would think of as the unnecessary fear, but there is fear and it holds people back. Yeah, uh, and also by acknowledging that how you do something is because it's true in life is also true in broadcast just is as important as what you're doing. And if you look confident, if you sound knowledgeable, if you look like you're on the front foot, all of those things come through the camera in a way that's priceless. Doesn't happen if you're the kind of 14th paragraph quote in a newspaper, but it does if you're on TV and if those clips get shared uh, and uh, people have a sense that you really mean it. Um, and I think this, this takes us quite quickly to what, to one of the big problems with, with journalism, like, with politics really at the moment, which is, um, too many people don't take risks. Too many people don't choose to learn, like, almost the hard way about how you do this stuff. And, and the hard, by the hard way, I simply mean trial and error. Not enough MPs throw themselves in front of the camera and take risks. They do very controlled appearances where they say the most monotonous, uh, script-based uh, rebuttals that sound inane. Um, Jonathan, as I'm sure we'll come on to, took risks early on. Like he would say, like they were quite painful. I would say, actually, uh, the truth is that they helped shape the fact that he understood what sort of where his um, where his lines actually are. You have to take risks. 
uh, because if you don't take risks, you'll never do it. And then one of the most absurd phenomena that I've come across in British politics is that often those people who are the most loyal to the party leaderships, who do what the whips tell them, often stay away from the camera or... Is that getting worse? Are you saying that's yeah. getting worse? I, not particularly, but there is a phenomenon where the kind of the people who are the most ambitious take the least risk. Yeah. And then suddenly, suddenly they end up in the cabinet. Mm. And they've never done a difficult interview in their life. And it shows. Are you talking about... And it shows. I'm talking about dozens of people down the ages. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to name anyone. Mm. But, you know, the phenomena of kind of, let's like to, 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 to caricature it, you know, SPAD to plum MPC to mid-ranking ministers, quote unquote, highly regarded, but you never really interact with them, to plum cabinet seat. And then the scared look as they sit opposite Sophie Ridge or something like that. It's just, you know, whereas people who tend to be a bit more rebellious, a bit more on one wing or another of the party are used to needing to work a bit harder because they're not kind of in some gilded ca carriage to the top of politics, for, you know, and they get out two or three stops before the top and then suddenly find it's all a bit tricky because they haven't done the hard yard. You know, take somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg, mm. right? There is somebody who honed his skills being a rebel across decades. And so he has pretty much mastered the art uh, of broadcasting to the extent that he actually takes a sinecure uh, at a place uh, that we will not name. Um, or um, take any number of people who are in the ERG. They're often really quite good on camera because yeah. they've learned how to attract attention, how to make an argument, how to make an argument in 22 seconds for a broadcast clip. What they haven't done is being told by the words, you can only go on, but you must only say this. And, and but is that definitely a good thing? Because <clears throat> some of my observation of some of those MPs, but certainly not all of them, is that often it is just a soundbite. So if you look at some big issues that the country faces, often you'll see, I'll oh, listen, so having been at the Home Office, listen to someone talk about immigration. And what they say is a great soundbite. It'll play well on social media, but actually would do absolutely nothing to address any of the issues that they're going to be talking about. So there's a... There's a balance to have between between being able to ca capture the attention. I, I agree, and I think that's part of MPs getting their message out. They need to be good at that. But there's a balance of of having something behind it, of course. But uh, if we're just talking about the ability to communicate, you know, which actually is probably one of the top two or three things that a cabinet minister's got to do, then and you think that's important, then then the the ones who are practiced, who are battle hardened, tend to be better. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. To, to back up Sam, it's certainly noticed by MPs, the ones that are going up the career ladder have done the least amount of interviews. And so they do, you get spiky conversations in the WhatsApp groups where people are saying, oh, well, you know, we need to unite as a team. And others will go, well, I've never seen you go out and do the, the media round. I've never seen you go out and take a tough interview. And even though you don't 100% agree with the message, you've held the line out of respect for the wider party unity. And it really does rile on people that they see some who have just sat there quietly, got their PPS job, moved up the ranks, but never, ever been on the front line. Yet when it comes to opposition day debates in the chamber, when it comes to the media round or politics live, there's certain people that do feel like they're used as cannon fodder. Heard of that. What's, what's politics live? <laughs> it's a very good show, but sadly on a broadcaster that we need to, you know, scrap the license fee from. But, uh, but thank you for the opportunity to push that, Sam. So for me, what I'm interested with broadcasters, you said about the storytelling. Obviously, with the 24-hour news cycle, lots of different channels you're competing against, as well as how how quickly are you allowed to get how quickly are you able to get something that is 
exclusive and really keep it exclusive without the fear of being pinched by another broadcaster? How how difficult is that challenge? Okay, let me break it down as two different questions, I may. One question on who's the competition and the other on how do we deal with exclusives. Right. Who's the competition? Is it the other rolling news channels? Is it all the big broadcasters who provide news? Is it the entire kind of corpus of, 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 of journalism in the UK? No, I think it's something else. I think what one of the things we need to do, uh, or one of the things that what we're competing for really is people's time, right? The ability to, uh, have viewers or readers or listeners who give us their, you know, pretty much undivided attention for a period of time. So we're competing, frankly, against everything, other news providers, but also TikTok, Twitter, you know, all, yeah, all yeah. social, social media, the telly on in the corner, the fact that you can't, can never concentrate. Right. So, so like, cause there's no point in doing journalism if nobody notices it. Right. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to command people's attention. And, and that doesn't necessarily at all mean. Uh, you exaggerate it or you, or you overstate it. Sometimes you command people's attention by simply having authority and the ability to say, this isn't very important or the ability to say, look at that, that really matters or a reputation that when they speak, they get it right. And, and, and it's kind of a combination of all of those things. I think that are really, really important for journalism to, 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 to succeed. So no, the, the competition isn't the person I'm sitting next to, the person on the floor below, you know, the other person in the lobby, that rather ghastly name for the, for the group of Westminster journalists who cover politicians, uh, in Westminster. Uh, it's, it's, it's everything. Um, how do you keep hold of an exclusive? Well, it depends on the information, depends on the data, uh, depends on what kind of thing that, you know, sometimes, I don't know, you might get some WhatsApps. Now you probably want to get them out pretty quickly um because the person that's given them to you might get a bit bored or a bit frustrated give them to somebody else or so if they're particularly juicy another mp on the whatsapp group might leak so that's one type of exclusive but there are lots and lots of things that we call exclusive and they're actually different types of information let me give you an example of one of the things i'm most proud of which went down incredibly badly with a lot of mps was a series at the beginning of this year called westminster accounts where we went through all sorts of, we, we basically created a database of money going into the political system and used it to analyze. One of the really interesting things that had never been revealed before was that one of the big donors to Keir Starmer was Dale Vince, who also was a big donor to Just Stop Oil, right? We sat on that story for weeks and weeks and weeks, like all over the Christmas period, for instance. I was really nervous that it was going to get spotted. It was sort of there in the numbers. And if you looked at the numbers and squinted and, you know, looked in the right way, you'd see that this guy was actually a massive donor to both. Now, um, it was a big impactful story that actually helped shift the conservative attack line against the Labour Party. It, it, ultimately, the reporting of it led to Delvin's ending his funding of Just Stop Oil. Um, but did we get that out the door the second we spotted it? No, I think there was like two, two and a half months from it being discovered to it being broadcast. So I think that's only, that's only to say- Why did you wait that long for that? Because we worked on the Westminster accounts for months and we wanted to put it all out in one go, in one, it sort of once we launched the public facing tool and had completed the 40 minutes of original journalism, 
you know, the dozen or so stories that we were doing and we wanted it all to go in one big package so we could have the biggest impact. And, you know, I'd like to think it did have that impact. Um, but we had to sit on a lot of those things for a long time. Every morning I woke up worried bluntly that, um, we might, we might, um, uh, that we might lose it. So I wanted to drag us back on something we've just, we touched on slightly earlier, which is the interviews. So <laughs> we, we will get onto your interview, Jonathan, don't, don't scoff. Yeah. But, uh, on a kind of serious note, you, you, you're one of the people that often when they go on a trip or the PM's doing something or the chancellor, you'll get kind of five minutes with the biggest politicians in the country, the leader of the opposition, the prime minister. And I'm curious, you know, they're only going to answer a few questions. You've got maybe five, six minutes, which is a very short amount of time. The lobby's all kind of asking the same questions. They know what questions you're going to ask. So they've prepared lines for your questions. Is it impossible to get something interesting out of them? Other times you have, and the, and how do you do that? Because it, it's a kind of sparring match where, you know, if you got Rishi in 10 minutes time, he knows you're going to say, why the immigration number is too high? What, what, what are you doing about them? And he's going to say, oh, we've got, we've got a great plan for it. How, how do you go into one of those interviews and try and get, elicit something from them? They don't really want to tell you, as you said, they've got all these prepared lines. Is that possible? Is, is it something you can do? So I've got a very clear approach to interviews, which is I've got to be in, I've got to ask a question where I'm interested in the answer. Like it's not about the question. It's not about me. Uh, it's about finding stuff out in order to advance the, the public conversation. So when you ever see the list of questions that I, or you watch me do an interview, it's because I, I actually am interested in where it takes us, not about having a clash. Um, but bluntly, once you're in that environment, you need to be pretty quick-witted in order to try and see if you can unpick some of the or get below the surface of some of the things that we're doing and and if we're being honest a lot of the times you don't really do it particularly in those short interviews particularly in those short pool interviews where one broadcaster interviews on behalf of everybody else and you can't really interrupt because that's the rule and that's and where you share and, and it's shared between all the other broadcasters yeah i mean there have been moments where i have managed to break through i did one interview with boris johnson after a by-election loss where he was trying to pass off blame on others for, I think it was at the end, back end of 2022, pass off the blame for, the, for that, a catastrophic by-election defeat on, on others and sort of vaguely blame the media for reporting about Partygate, right? I sort of was having none of it. And I'd heard another interview on the radio that morning uh, where the minister was facing similar questions. And so I sort of heard how they were, were rebutting it and I've, and I basically figured that's the number 10 line to rebut that kind of question. So I, so if I can work out a rebuttal to their rebuttal, we're probably in business. Uh, and, and, and then we got under, he got in the skin and he sort of had to, he had to agree it was basically all his fault. And it was quite painful. And by the way, because it was Boris Johnson, one of the things that Boris Johnson does when you interview him is he engages you in the eyes. Like I've never met anyone else do really? before. He stares at you. He stares into your soul. In order to sort of, you know, with great doughy eyes, implore, why are you being so difficult with me? Can't you, can't you go together on this big journey, big together, together, <laughs> you, me, difficult questions, no, nice questions, yes, just you to me, we're just best of, you know, we're just, I'm reaching into your heart, I love you so much. Right. So what I did on that- Does it work? Well, on this interview, I refused to look him in the eyes, just looked down the iPad. Really? I refused to engage him in eye contact at all in the most brutal interview I did with him, and he hated it. He hated it. He sort of, you know, stormed off afterwards. Is, is there, are there, have you ever been in an interview where you've actually felt sorry for the person you're interviewing? That they, in the sense, 
I don't know. For example, if it was about letters or anything. Okay. Have uh, you ever but, seen someone in an interview just, uh, the question I've got to get, have you ever seen a, one of the a politicians and you can see them realize they don't know where they're going with it? Okay. So I, I, I'm now going to step in on behalf of uh, the listener. Uh, because what you have did, the because, because you have, uh, well, an elephant's better than nobody listening. <laughs> um, but I, but that you have detected rightly listener that, uh, uh, James and Jonathan are referring to what they would regard as an in joke, but you're not in, or in the in joke yet. So let us take you there. Um, back in Jonathan Gullis's early days, uh, he was, uh, young, youthful and naive, uh, and agreed to go on Sky News in order to, do an interview. Basically, he was doing a sort of media round, and I'd uh, I was there for Sky, and he turned up to be interviewed by Anush Kristana of ITV News. And in his final answer to her, he said, "Well, look, I mean, so this isn't a very good Jonathan Gullis impression, <laughs> but I'm going to persevere. Look, I mean, uh, I, I understand that there are some letters, some letters that are being withdrawn from the chairman of the 1922. These are the days where he defended prime ministers. Obviously, it's a long <laughs> time ago. I, I understand there's some letters being withdrawn." From uh, Graham Brady as well as being put in. I mean, so so we really don't know what's what's going on. And I was I was at the next door camera because there's basically a meter separates. I've got the microphone, Jonathan. Please hush. Um, so it's about. So I was like, oh, um, uh, I just turned straight down the barrel to the gallery who controls Scully. So I said, can we come like that? Oh, not another bloody Tory MP. And I was like, yeah, no, no, you want. This. And um, so then I turned to Jonathan when he'd finished. He was like, oh, Jonathan, you just come do us. And you were like, oh, okay. And um, and I knew that it was, I was thought it was weird he'd just done it in the final answer because I was earwigging, obviously. And I just thought, well, let's start there. And I insisted <laughs> they took it live. And basically it was like, Jonathan just announced that letters were being withdrawn. And I just went, how do you know? And um, uh, Jonathan uh, said that he'd heard. I said, what do you mean you'd heard? And he said, well, I've been told. And I was like, well, do you know who? And he went, no. And uh, I said, do you know how many? And he went, no. Uh, and I said, how can you be sure that it's true? And he was like, cause I've been told. And I said, well, if you don't know who they are and you're relying on hearsay, I mean, you know, who's to say that this isn't just complete rubbish that you're coming on the telly and saying, um, and I quite enjoyed the, I think I rebutted back to you with, well, I know letters are being taken outside, just like, you know, they're being put in, I think was my, was the, was the top line at the end from that as a reaction. I don't think it was a takeout. I think, I, I think for me, the takeout was the look of fear. Yeah. Um, I have this interview, uh, on servers, uh, and indeed on my phone. Uh, so if anybody wants to watch what a very scared MP looks like, <laughs> just come and find me in Westminster. To, yeah. I can't believe we're doing, I, I hate you so much, James, for doing <laughs> Right. So what made it worse is Sam actually put it forward for an award, which he got nominated. And then James, I was out for a dog walk when James texted me saying, Oh, congratulations, winner. Only to then tell me that Sam had put this uh, forward, to which I think a lot of expletives on my dog walk down to James down the line and begging him to figure out how can I get Sam to not put this forward. Gloriously, in, gloriously dear listener, of course, that's 60% inaccurate. We considered to enter it in an award. We never actually Oh, did. there we go. Okay. James didn't tell me that. James it's enjoyed worse. James I literally <laughs> told you that, Jonathan, several times. <laughs> I've, I have forgotten. we have this conversation quite regularly. Okay. Well, I've, I generally have forgotten, but all I can say is, which, yeah, which takes us to which takes us neatly to my next point, which is what's fascinating to me is that politicians aren't always right, and um, uh, and I'm not actually talking about you here, but like generally are surprisingly underinformed about things often that I yeah. think that I would expect them to know more about. They don't read the papers, they don't take in the news. They 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 can 
I think there is a slightly worrying trend of simply surfing on Twitter and think you know it all. Oh, no, no, Sam, to back you up there, there's, there's, look, you've got, as you know, with Conservative HQ, they'll have the Conservative Research Department. They give you the briefing. You've obviously got the lines that you'll watch the minister on the media round use in the morning. And then, yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot will just look on Twitter and sort of kind of get a vibe. And if I learned anything for early on was the importance of doing your own research and actually trying to find particularly stats and facts that you could throw into an interview that maybe the journalist who's interviewing you wouldn't know in the hope that you would sound more on top of the brief and the detail, but also to obviously help you with your side of the argument. But sounds bang on the money. I think MPs are being, I think MPs in the chamber are now trained to give three minute speeches of which 30 seconds of soundbite. And I think that's transferring through to broadcast media, which is, this is the line, no matter what the question is, don't move off it. Don't show personality. And I think that is a real problem with politics because I think actually politicians are meant to be giving opinions, meant to be having debates on big issues and offering different perspectives so that you can try and come to some sort of consensus if at all possible. I think that's, I think Sam's bang on the money there, person. But on, with the journalists, you could level some of the same criticism. I mean, for example, you know, in the, in the past few days with all the immigration stuff, people call you up and having worked at the home office and say, what do you think about this? And, the, and I think if you were to say, ask them, why is the government doing a treaty, which they'll write about and they'll go on TV about, do, do how many journalists do you think understand what is the actual legal reason the government are attempting to do a treaty with Rwanda? I, I think it would be small. I mean, so, so you do, that, I mean, that's quite a straightforward example there. The government are trying to do a treaty with Rwanda to reassure the courts and address some of the challenges from the Supreme Court ruling, particularly around the processes that Rwanda have when it comes to processing migrants who arrive from the UK. You you understand, although I think it might also be linked with Rwanda's own domestic law. That I mean, that is inevitably, you know, you invoke international law if you don't think that you can trust domestic law. That's why you would do a treaty. Exactly. You understand. But do you, do you think, do you accept that some journalists don't always have, lack the level of knowledge that you're claiming MPs sometimes do? Um, I don't think I'm going to give a running commentary about my fellow <laughs> journalists and I don't think you would expect me to, to, the answer's to do yes. that. So I the think answer's I've, yes. I think I've been extremely clear that I'm a big supporter of journalism. I have lots of faith in journalists and, you know, I think it's a terrific profession. Journalism has done a great deal of good for this country. I think there have been I mean, come on, guys, if you're going to like be podcast, you can interrupt and sort of get on the front foot. Here. D allow me to steal the microphone, steal the but conversation. I feel like you're now giving us the politician's answer. Exactly. Oh, God, that's exactly <laughs> what I was doing. I was sort of inviting you to step in and stop because I could then go on for like minutes and yeah. minutes with complete like just verbiage in order to wind down the clock so that the interview could be over without me committing any great big faux pas of the sort that, you know, He's some still doing it now, Sam. We're still waiting for an answer to the question. Some of the people, some of the people Sam, around the table we're still waiting for an answer for the question. Sorry, you're deflecting. I was talking about do you journalists, your problem. Do journalists always know what they're on about? They have as much knowledge that I can't claim. MPs. I can't claim to have seen everything that every journalist has ever done. And I don't think you would expect so the answer me to is yes, do that. That's fine. Okay, thanks, I, I Sam. We can move on to the next question. Well, if you're going no, to give... Let me ask you a more direct question then. So you, you'll sit on the lobby call every day. So you listen to the, or the, or in the in-person briefing. Do you ever listen to some of the questions and think you obviously don't know what you're talking about? Um, so I think that's a really unfair question. I think it's fine not to understand in a pri like in a private briefing mm. what's going on. And, and by the way, to slightly turn that around, the answers that you get are confusing and unrevealing in a lot of government and opposition briefings because they don't want to go into too much detail for fear of 
uh, a negative story. And um, if there is confusion, it takes two to tango. It, like the facts of almost anything are not clear. Take an example that is this week in the news. You know what's going to be in the emergency legislation that the government's going to put forward in two or three weeks' time, right? Yeah. So, like for me as a journalist, how do I write? I am told by the prime minister because he said so uh, in front of a podium like a week ago uh, that he's going to bring forward emergency legislation. The job of that legislation is to make sure that um, uh, uh, the domestic courts are not a problem when it comes to the Rwanda policy and uh, address uh, address make sure that, that there are no legal challenges that will that will be successful. Right, that isn't that isn't a piece of law, right? That is an aspiration and an end point. So, how does he do it? What's he going to do? Well, there will be nobody who can tell you on the record what he's going to do. There will be nobody in government, nobody in government, who will tell you what the options are. Government never does that. So, what do you do? You have to go around people who might know, and that can include MPs that are campaigning. It can include experts, and sort of piece together the whole thing yourself, right? And there are some, like MPs in the New Conservatives group, like Jonathan, who will understand, know, and uh, uh, and, and kind of be across the detail. Lots of people will know. We have to piece together the story of what's happening at the moment with only a limited amount of help from the people that I assume most people think are telling us. So is that is that a lot of what a journalist's job is? So take your day today. How much time are you on air today, roughly? Um, probably 10 minutes. Probably 10 minutes on air. So is the rest of your day largely taken up with finding out stuff? For example, with this being, well, I mean, in terms of, as you've just said, there's a big piece of legislation coming down. We know it's going to come down probably before Christmas, maybe in the next two weeks. We don't know what it is. You're going to have to report on it. Journalists want to be able to break what might be in it beforehand, I'm guessing. Um, is that one of the things you spend, you spend your time doing? Going to try and- uh, Of course, although... It isn't I turn up at work at nine and begin finding out and then, you know, you know, find out at five to seven and then go on politics hub at seven o'clock and say to, to Sophie Ridge that the process of finding out what's going on goes on for me seven days a week, all the waking time. And the process of finding out what's going on involves, yes, asking people, but if you go through the front door, often you don't get very much back, particularly with official spokesmen. Mm. Actually, the process that I go through seven days a week is like just cultivating and talking to and, uh, yeah, having a bit of fun with and getting to know a whole load of people, particularly on WhatsApp. You know, my WhatsApp to go click, click, click all weekend, all time of the day and night. And, you know, a third to two thirds of the traffic with people who are potentially good sources is just like people having fun, reacting, slightly blowing off steam, maybe commenting on something that somebody else is doing. None of it is kind of particularly live, active, like news gathering work. But why do they tell you? Uh, but then, but then, but then when it comes to it and they have something because I've got a pre-existing relationship with them because they trust me, maybe they like me, uh, maybe they think I'm fair. Then at the point at which they have something, if I've got, if I try and have as many live conversations with people that go on whenever they need it, whenever they want to, you know, some of my source conversations are 80% about running. <laughs> some of my source conversations like WhatsApp conversations uh, are 60% about how this person got something wrong or that person's an idiot, right? Like the, 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 the kind of so much of the job is like relationship management so that at the point at which you actually really need something, you need to ask them a question that where you actually care about the answer quite urgently or 
you're the person best positioned to get their best product when they come across it. You want to be that person because there's no guarantee anybody should ever come to me. So I have to work to create as many relationships constantly as possible in order to best understand what's going on. And, and, and it's a question of scale. And the more you do it, the more you get, because more people see that you can be trusted. But that's what I do. It's just endless back and forth. So that, so that, is that at the heart of it then is, is being trusted? I think being trusted, um, being the person that you, you know, yeah, basically being trusted. And what does that mean in Westminster? Uh, what, why, be, why do you trust one journalist over another, do you think? Um, I think you would trust, for instance, you would trust like some information with a journalist if A, you thought they were going to protect you as a source. B, because you thought that if you gave something you cared about um, to them, they would have impact. And that often it means accepting that they don't take stuff uncritically and will put a whole load of context around it and will make clear bits that, that are factually inaccurate, even at date, but give, get the balance right. Um, and thirdly, because um, you think it's a sort of gateway to a, to, a, to a solid relationship kind of in the future. You say, obviously, about MPs not taking enough risk. Do you think there's an issue with broadcast that means when MP does make a mistake, this is not me, I, made, I, was, the, I was the downfall of myself. If an MP does make a mistake, with the social media age that we now live in, it's kind of like you get one shot and as soon as you make a mistake, it's now unforgiven and you'll forever be haunted by that mistake. Do you think the broadcast media at all play any role in creating that atmosphere that maybe some MPs feel exists? Um, I think that social media does a bit, but I also think, I think one of the problems that we're like, it's actually the psychology of the individual, not necessarily either the broadcaster or the social, right? Actually, I think everyone's pretty tolerant, uh, but because we live in our each individual social media bubble, um, you, you know, you don't see the criticism of other people in the same way that you see the criticism of yourself. Now, you know, if you are, to take one example, trending on a certain social media platform, right? And I don't know, sure, you know, some people around this table, that has been, the, right. That can be, <laughs> that can be, that can get in your skull like nothing else yeah. for the period that that's happening. But do you know the funny thing? Almost nobody knows. Almost nobody in Westminster would have noticed that you are, you know, trending they won't see it. It's not in their feed. They don't live in your world. They don't live in your head. And actually, I think what happens, the social media algorithm tells you things are worse about you than perhaps they yeah. are. And I think that actually the problem is in the broadcasters. It's, it, it, it's the individuals needing to chill out a bit. Do you know where I think, I, I, I agree with your analysis, by the way. I always think whenever I've seen myself trending, I've never had constituents waiting to queue up to tell me about it. In fact, I think I've at best had a handful of emails. I think what's interesting for the MP is, is the impact on the loved one at home, the family member. That's where I know it gets very tricky. That's fair. Because I see my, because I go back and my partner is getting texts from her friends who have seen I'm trending or seen the nasty tweets or, you know, her family are sharing it saying, I hope you're okay. And sometimes some vile people even drag the family into it. And I think that's, why taking risk is now so dangerous in this social media age because ultimately it's not just myself but it's my family will suffer as a consequence I, the idea of what my partner must be like or my children must be like because of what i think or what i believe certainly has i think why a lot of mps fear doing the broadcast much more than they do the print the print you're in total control of the quote that you send back via whatsapp 
and you can think very carefully about how subtle or unsubtle you want to be. That's uh, so, so. That's that's absolutely fair, and and perhaps that's a dynamic that I un, underplay. But just in that last bit, you revealed yourself, right? With print, you send a WhatsApp quote, right? That's not an interview. That's not exposure. That is uh, you sending a press release to a journalist and the journalist choosing or not choosing to copy it out, right? That is a very different relationship. True. That would be like the equivalent in broadcast is us choosing to take a Twitter video of you that you've recorded of yourself, right? They're, just, they're sort of chalk and cheese. That's fair. That's fair. One thing I was interested in, Sam, is when I look at your how you kind of carry out your business now, you, you're obviously on Sky a lot of the day. But you're, you use social media very well, I think, personally, for your, in terms of, it feels to me like journalists now in the modern age with social media being one of the key ways people share, share media, share news, they have to have a kind of a brand for themselves. You've said it's really important for you to be trusted by your sources and obviously the viewer, the listener. And you've got the, a great new podcast, which if people don't do listen to, they should do with yeah, Jack Blanchard of Politico which is a great look at the week ahead, which is another kind of vehicle. You're very good at, I think, at explaining things on, going onto Twitter to explain what you've been on Sky to explain. Is that a conscious effort? Do you think more people should, how much effort does that take? I'm kind of, was that something you just, you took, you were already doing when you were in the print or do, have you moved more to do that now you're on the broadcast and things were evolving quite quickly? Uh, that's very kind. Um, the, of course it's conscious. It's 100% conscious. Um, Different people kind of are aware of, might be aware, you know, I wouldn't ever say that, like might be aware of what I do through a whole host of different platforms. The, probably the biggest platform that propels my content all over the place is the Sky News app, which is actually terrific. It's way better than the BBC app. And it like, it's punchy, it's interesting, and it'll have everything from the papers up in the night to like the best clips of the day, plus really good analysis everyone, you know, Ed Conway and, you know, all our massive foreign bureaus, right? So that in numbers terms gets you far and wide. But my shop window for Westminster, the place that people in Westminster are most likely to consume what I do is X or Twitter. And that is why I give a lot of thought and believe quite strongly that I need to be careful, disciplined and on brand, um, but also kind of quite regular and a presence on that social media platform. And that is about advertising what I do, uh, offering up things that are going on, almost inviting comment, breaking stories, being engaging, being the person like my, the relationship. You guys know this is that, you know, you'll put something up on, on Twitter. You immediately get a WhatsApp back if it's landed or if it hasn't landed, if they like it, if they dispute it, right? It, it's a way of driving horrible word engagement, but like mm. responses, like you find out quite quickly if you're wrong on something. Um, you, it's the, it's the sort of very first draft of your journalism in some senses. Um, and, but then also I think you need to balance that with, you know, um, some of the content that you see on, uh, on X that I do is simply a screen record of like the 10 o'clock live that I'll do at 10 o'clock tonight. And that'll be my best considered 90 second summary of where we are on. So tonight it'll be on migration, right? That's where, it, right. And then that'll be what I think. And it gets quite good numbers. We're talking like tens of thousands of people watch. I did one about. Rishi Sunak being uh, interviewing Elon Musk, at, you know, a few uh, a few weeks ago, we we got something like four point seven million people watched uh, watched that. So you can you can drive engagement, and 
And, and the thing about good political content is that actually it gets quite good numbers. There's so much rotten political content that doesn't really make much sense, but that, that goes in the gutter and people aren't really interested in that. When you get it, you, when you get it right in the sense that it's accurate, uh, and it's comprehensible and it's like, and it turns the dial, it is widely shared and widely noticed. And, uh, that's why that social media platform remains the most efficient for doing that. And until it's not the most efficient for doing that, it'll continue to, it'll continue to be the kind of, you know, home of choice, however imperfect for journalists and politicians. And then another question I, I wanted to ask you is when you, I remember when you went from Times to Sky, I always associated you at the Times with getting scoops, <clears throat> getting really hard to find stories, which is, um, easiest, I would say easier said than done. And I, that's not something that broadcast lends itself well to in the same way as kind of having that splash for the next day. It's, it's kind of feels different when you just mentioned it on air. It is, I've always, I thought maybe the way you use social media is one way around that, that you're able to break. So is that me completely misreading it? So I think it's, it's, I, I, I would do it slightly differently. Um, uh, my job at the Times and my job at Sky, the ultimate job, identical. The, the job is to find out completely and to as much depth as you can, what is really going on. And it just happens you present that information differently depending on what platform you're doing it on. So on, so a newspaper needs a front page that will bluntly sell copies and sound really new and really splashy. And so a culture of scoops, uh, has, uh, grown up around that. Um, and, and having something new matters more than having something important or indeed sometimes something right. Right. Whereas in, Whereas in telly, having the most authoritative take is, and being the person who, for whom, when they see you on the telly, they unmute the telly and they donate 90 seconds of their concentration to is the goal. But at the heart of both of those is having the best information. Mm. But you might use it slightly differently. Now, I'm lucky on Sky because also you can do all sorts of really cool exclusive content. Like I mentioned Westminster accounts. That was, you know, where we found out about these donations to MPs, um, who were part of the Northern Research Group. And it was coming from a Northern broadband company that nobody ever heard of that didn't appear to have uh, a premises that was staffed, you know, and led to ultimately that relationship led to an investigation by Ipsa that's still going on. There was the scoop of, um, Keir Starmer talking about how he didn't really want to diverge from European Union rules, which is something he said that nobody picked up on at a progressive conference in Canada. That was a scoop. You can do scoops. You do the, like the little WhatsApp leaks, which can, which can, you know, dominate a few hours of a, of, of, a, of an evening, but get enormous traffic and make a big difference. You know, you can do them, but what the platform is looking for is slightly different. What you might lean into in certain hours is slightly different for. But in the end, the job is the same. The job is to be the person who understands what's going on and can communicate it most, most effectively. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it at all. That's really interesting. And final question. Given this great brand you've got on social media, you're on Sky every day. How often do you describe yourself as quote unquote the talent, oh, which is, no. which is what Jonathan now no, describes you're himself? Fake news, you're fake news, James. You're fake. Is that, is that something that you would use to describe yourself? Fake news. 
I'm delighted that Jonathan joins me as uh, part of a talent crew. James, we are going to have to put you back in the cheap seats because <laughs> talent only really talks to talent, don't talent we, Jonathan? Talks to ta- so you and we're not, really, we're not really interested in kind of the people who just, you know, make things sort of happen. You're doing the tech. You mean the special advisors who used to leak behind the scenes, stuff like that, and uh, brief? All I'm, say, all, all, all I'm saying, Jonathan, you and me, we're peas in the pod. He's the outsider. He shouldn't. Oh, well, on that note, I'm really glad. I'm, I just can't believe this. On that note, uh, I want to thank you, Sam, for coming on the pod. And obviously, James said it earlier, but you do have uh, Jack and Sam's amazing pod that everyone should be tuning into. Do you want to quickly plug it now? Politics of Jack and Sam's, uh, which is a weekly look ahead uh, on what's coming up in British politics. Uh, it drops at about seven o'clock on a Sunday evening. Listen to it on a Sunday evening or a Monday morning, you'll commute in and you will be ahead of absolutely everything we think that is going to happen in the week ahead. We basically, it's a combination of predicting, knowledge. we work incredibly hard to bring you everything so that you don't have to do that work. Uh, it's a service for everyone in Westminster and beyond anybody who's interested in politics from wherever you get your podcasts. I can genuinely vouch for it because, for example, Sam has actually been bashful for once in his life there. But uh, at the pods, he did mention that he thought James Cleverly in any future reshuffle was going to move from the foreign office to the home office. There was no one else that I could see that was saying that and albeit all below us, the next day, there is James Cleverly first in the door, confirmed as the Home Secretary. So it is certainly... You, you it, do make all these predictions and then it's terrifying the next morning when you begin having to mark your own homework, uh, making predictions on the basis of analysis and briefing and saying how things are going to go is not a cost-free exercise. You do end up, uh, you, you know, on air you can sound quite confident, but you worry about whether or not you're going to get things right because your reputation depends on, you know, not messing up. Did you have Lord Cameron on your... (laughs) Good, it's good to know that everyone else is in the dark as well on that one. Well, look, thank you to Sam for tuning in, uh, for coming on, sorry, and thank you to you tuning in, the listener, to Inside Whitehall. Remember... Which is a place that Jonathan Gullis isn't really well. (laughs) I mean, 51 days. 51 days, Sam, I spent there until the Prime Minister (laughs) sent me my big ironically called Inside Whitehall with Jonathan Gullis. Well, the good thing is James is spending much longer inside Whitehall, so he's actually able to uh, share perspective and please make sure however you listen to your pods you hit the subscribe button that you leave us a rating that you leave us a review and of course you can follow us on x slash twitter at whitehall pod uk to stay in touch thank you sam for coming on thanks so much